morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's May 14th, 2014. I, um, I want to quickly um, give some kudos. There was an apparently two weeks ago or so, an unexpected triplet delivery in the ICN, which, as we know, those are fairly rare. We usually have those planned and have teams in advance that are prepared to uh, receive those preterm deliveries. And we have created a system where we have a respiratory transport team of a respiratory therapist and a nurse who are available to perform our transports now. And because that team was available, particularly John Pike, the respiratory therapist, and Lindsay Stickney, they were able in the ICN to, um, to stabilize those newborns with essentially three teams available, even though that's stretching the capacity of what we typically have in-house on an unexpected basis. And I haven't heard any updates subsequently. My, my hope and expectation is those triplets have done well subsequently. I know, George, you haven't probably been in the, in the nursery lately. I don't see anyone else from the ICN. But, but this was really a team effort, and I want to thank the whole ICN and congratulate the, the, the foresight for having this, uh, this team who was going out on transport or essentially did a transport in our own, in our own ICN. So if you, have folk, if you have a chance to see the folks in the, in the ICN, Still scanning the crowd. Anyone from? They're probably busy stabilizing those triplets right now. <laughs> we will have uh, grand rounds next week, uh, continuing our Chad Gastroenterology Mini Fellowship Series. Dr. Hoffley will be talking about food reactions and the spectrum of uh, uh, food reactions. And then Michelle Shepard at the end of the month will um, uh, talk about improving neonatal abstinence syndrome treatment. Today, we, um, we've had really a nice spell of, of visiting professors. Today, we welcome Dr. Ellen Wald, uh, who Dr. Maudlin invited before he headed off to Seattle. So we're been pleased to host Dr. Wald. Dr. Wald is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Brooklyn College and an Alpha Omega Alpha from Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, where she continued her postgraduate training at Kings County Hospital in Pediatrics and Fellowship at the University of Maryland Hospital in Baltimore. Uh, she had, uh, has had a distinguished career in Maryland as well as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Since 2006, has been the professor and chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison and pediatrician-in-chief at American Family Children's Hospital. Um, the CV is impressive. Those of us in pediatrics have looked to her work in sinusitis, and we're going to talk today about urinary tract infections, but really making important infectious disease uh, considerations uh, relevant and, and applicable and uh, usable in the clinical setting for those of us who see the vast majority of these common conditions which have important consequences uh, in terms of cost, uh, care, and uh, public health when it comes to decreasing. I always think, I don't know that this is necessarily true, but I always think of Dr. Wald when I'm thinking back to my training of rotitis media and sinusitis and, and strep throat in terms of decreasing unnecessary antibiotic use. Uh, I don't know what the gist of today's talk will be. I'll, I'll just top it off by saying, in addition to multiple honors, Dr. Wald is long a member of both the Society for Pediatric Research and the American Pediatric Society, which many of us know are the highest honors in the field that uh, you can attain in academic pediatrics. So. Uh, to get Dr. Wall to the podium, and without further ado, Dr. Alan Wall, thank you. Uh, good morning. I'm very glad to be here, and thank you for that kind uh, introduction. 
So we're going to spend our time talking about urinary tract infections today, and there's been a lot of recent news, so I think uh, we'll try to update how we think about this issue. Um, the urinary tract, as probably you know, is the most common site for a serious bacterial infection in children. In several large series of children evaluated for fever, the urinary tract was the site of infection for between 5 to 6 percent of children. Currently, it is more common than bacterial meningitis, bacterial pneumonia, and occult bacteremia. And in fact, it is especially common as a cause of infection in Caucasian infant girls in whom it may explain episodes of high fever nearly 20% of the time. So what I'd like to do this morning is briefly review pathogenesis, signs and symptoms, definitions, diagnostic methods, review the clinical guidelines from 2011, and then spend time talking about controversies in management, particularly with respect to the performance of VCUGs and the use of antimicrobial <laughs> prophylaxis. So when we think of pathogenesis of urinary tract infections, there are two pathogenetic mechanisms which account for virtually all urinary tract infections. Rarely, the urinary tract may be infected by the hematogenous route. This is said to account for some small portion of infections that occur in neonates, but is rare at all other times. Far and away, the most common pathogenetic mechanism is the ascending route. Bacteria derived from the fecal flora colonize the periurethral area and then gain access to the urethra and to the bladder. In general, we depend on the bladder remaining free of infection because of frequent and complete voiding. If anything interferes with frequent and complete voiding, then the stage will be set for the development of a urinary tract infection. So say you're taking care of a child who has anorexia, a severe sore throat, vomiting, anything that keeps them from drinking as they ordinarily would. Any sign or symptom that really interferes with fluid intake is going to change urinary dynamics. And in that case, the urinary stream may be decreased in both force and volume, and therefore ineffective in washing out any bacteria which may have gained entrance to the urethra. So in that way, we think that any illness, even those outside of the urinary tract, may predispose to urinary tract infection. This slide looks at the bacterial etiology, which is well known to the audience. 95% of all cases of urinary tract infection are caused by gram negatives, and E. coli still heads the list, Klebsiella pneumoniae and Proteus mirabilis falling behind. And then about 5% of all urinary tract infections are caused by gram-positive organisms. And the two organisms here that we think about are Enterococci and Staphylococcus saprophyticus. So we know that um, a pediatrician, the, the primary care doctor who takes care of children, needs to always be thinking about the possibility of urinary tract infection, and that from the point of view of the clinical perspective, that there may be specific and nonspecific signs that herald the presentation of a urinary tract infection. And for infants, it's the nonspecific sign and symptom of fever that is far and away most common. The specific findings that we see in older children with bladder infection especially are frequency, urgency, dysuria, and suprapubic tenderness. And then the specific findings in older children with pyelonephritis are flank pain and costovertebral angle tenderness, as 
relatively specific, and then fever chills and rigors as less specific findings. So we know that although symptoms and signs are going to make us think about urinary tract infection, that our threshold really has to be very high to consider the possibility of urinary tract infection in any child who presents with fever. And we know that the crux of the issue is sending a urine um, for culture. And it turns out that the definition of urinary tract infection really varies according to the method by which the urine is collected. And this variance in definition acknowledges that although the bladder urine is surely regarded as a sterile body fluid, that we recognize that it can become contaminated. Any specimen of urine can be contaminated if it passes through the urethra. And so when we think about the toilet-trained child, we think about the midstream clean-catch specimen, or so-called best-catch specimen, as being one that's relatively reliable to determine the presence of urinary tract infection. And the set for significant bacteria when urine is collected by the clean-catch method is 10 to the 5 colony-forming units per mil. And so we ask the child um, to urinate into the commode. And actually, if the, you can have the child or encourage her to straddle the commode in reverse position, this allows a natural separation between the urethra and the labia, which just can't be accomplished with the child who sits this way. And if there is a commode which is um, present in some places like this one, then you can kind of use that as a little shelf to put your urine cup in. It's kind of nice to have that handy for the patient. So the patient begins to urinate, and midway in the urinary stream, we insert the sterile cup, and we collect that urine. Now, what we've learned is that cleansing the urethra and periurethral area doesn't actually reduce the likelihood that the urine culture is going to be contaminated. And that's because the contaminating bacteria are in the distal urethra. So although it's quite commonplace to cleanse the periurethral area, in fact, it probably is an exercise in futility. When you collect a urine by the catheterized route, then we define significant bacteria as 5 times 10 to the 4 or 50,000 colony-forming units. And in this case, we do recommend cleansing the periurethral area. And you can use either iodine or sterile water. Um, and then we need to select an appropriate size catheter, which is lubricated, and gently insert the catheter into um, the urethra. Now, one of the things that's really important and pretty basic, but I think it doesn't happen, and that's allowing the first few drops of urine that come through that catheter to actually drop outside of the collecting vessel. And that's because that urine, which reflects the distal urethra, is very likely to be contaminated. And it accounts for the fact that we have low levels of bacteria, even in catheterized specimens. And that's why we set the significance of bacteria at still such a high level of 50,000 colony-forming units. When we collect five or 10,000 colony-forming units from a calf specimen, we think that's probably just contamination. The other really common source of contamination in catheterized specimen is the situation in which you try to catheterize the urethra, you fail, and you then do not discard that catheter. If there's a failed first attempt, that catheter must be discarded and a new one picked up. 
Now, if we sample the urine by the supercubic technique, then we define significant bacteria as any colony count, and that's because we bypass the source of contamination, which is the distal urethra. And I know this is a, an art that's gone away, but I think we should talk about it maybe in the Q&A and think about how we could revive it. So when we do suprapubic aspiration, the child's usually in a supine position with their lower extremities flexed. And then we clean the suprapubic area with a solution of iodine and alcohol. And we put our index finger over the symphysis pubis. And then we take this needle, which is usually a 3 ml needle with a 1 and a half, this a 3 ml syringe and a 1, one and a half inch needle. And we kind of just insert it into about 1 and a half centimeters above the symphysis pubis. And we try to angle it toward the fundus of the bladder, about 20 degrees from the vertical, kind of pointing in a slightly cephalad position. Now, we know that the success of this procedure is going to be increased if the child has been encouraged to drink and their diaper has been dry for the half hour before the procedure is done. And a lot of centers try to use ultrasound to make sure the bladder is full before the procedure is done. And it's definitely something that's recommended when you really can't get a cath specimen. So if you have a little girl with labial adhesions, which really prohibit the catheterization, then suprapubic really is what you need to do. And the other time that you need to do it is when you've gotten several catheterized specimens and they're just not interpretable. And that absolutely happens. So I just want to stress on this slide that, of course, these are guidelines. Nothing is in cement here. Nothing is absolute. And you will occasionally see a symptomatic child who has an important urinary tract infection at colony counts lower than those here. So how will you know that it's worth pursuing? The way you know it's worth pursuing is that you recover a single organism, not more than one, and you recover it in multiple urine cultures in a symptomatic patient. So when that happens, you need to follow it up. And then the second thing that I want to emphasize is that if you are going to, you're taking care of a sick child and you're going to need to start antibiotics as soon as that urine is collected, then we need to make sure that we have that urine collected by the best and most easily interpreted technique, which means doing a suprapubic if you can. If you can't do it or if the suprapubic is dry, then a catheterized specimen is next best. Because once you start those antibiotics, you know you're never going to be able to go backwards. So the last thing we're going to talk about is the bag specimen. And um, we know that we clean the perineum with soap and water, and we attach the plastic bag, and we wait for the child to avoid. And as soon as the child voids, we remove the bag. And if the child hasn't voided in 30 minutes, it's actually recommended that you sort of start again. You wash the perineum and put on a new bag and wait and wait again. And we also know that this is not a preferred technique if you're going to need to start antibiotics. You do not want a bag specimen, that a bag specimen is only valuable when the culture is negative. If the culture of a bag specimen is positive, it must be repeated by a more reliable method. With a prevalence of urinary tract infections of 5%, as it is in febrile infant girls, the likelihood that a bag specimen, which is positive, is actually a false positive is about 88%. So we really don't want to be in that pickle of not being able to interpret what we have. Now, the other issue with regard to urine cultures as the defining characteristic of urinary tract infection is that the results are not ready until tomorrow. And so for that reason, there's been just a lot of interest in developing methods that would be useful for predicting the results of the urine culture today at the time of the initial encounter with the symptomatic patient. And so people have 
focused on the methods of urine microscopy, which allows them to look at white blood cells as well as bacteria, and also to look at biochemical markers, such as leukocyte esterase and urinary nitrite, which can be determined by dipstick. Let's talk about dipsticks first. Dipsticks are really convenient, they're inexpensive, they're really easy to perform. The leukocyte esterase on the dipstick is a marker for white cells and therefore is a surrogate for pyuria in the urine. The overall sensitivity of leukocyte esterase is between 50 and 88%, really depending on the population that's studied. Nitrite, on the other hand, reflects the presence of bacteria in the bladder, and we know that the Urine has to sit in the bladder for at least four hours in order to generate an amount of nitrite that is detectable by that stick. And for that reason then, the sensitivity of the nitrite is only between 30 to 50%. And what we find frequently is that in young babies who have urinary tract infection, that the nitrite is negative because they tend to void well before four hours. And so um, we, we certainly can't rely and don't expect a positive nitrite in that age group. On the other hand, the test is very specific, and so when your nitrite is positive, you're going to be pretty likely to have a true urinary tract infection. Now, because the dipstick overall um, has a variable sensitivity, it is recommended that in a child who has a suspected urinary tract infection that you do a urine culture even when that dipstick is negative. Now, urine microscopy, which is a very helpful technique, requires a lot more equipment and training than the performance of the dipstick. The traditional way in which urine microscopy is done is the evaluation of a centrifuged specimen, which is usually unstained, and then that specimen is examined for the presence of bacteria and white blood cells, and that is expressed as the number of those items per high-power field. And it, it turns out that the sensitivity of these results of urine microscopy can really be tremendously improved if you make three modifications to what I just described. And the first is using an uncentrifuged specimen rather than one that has been centrifuged, using a counting chamber to enumerate the number of cells, and then doing a gram-stained smear. Now, at a number of centers where those techniques are available, urine microscopy has been very much improved, and when people use those techniques, in addition to looking through the microscope, that method is called an enhanced urinalysis. Now, assessing pyuria with a counting chamber is a very sensitive and specific test, especially in infants and young children, where the amount of pyuria may not be as high as it is in older patients. And so when we do urine microscopy, we take the uncentrifuged sample of urine and we put it right on the counting chamber, and then we count all the cells on the grid, and I'm going to show you a picture of that grid in a minute. And then we express the pyuria as the number of white blood cells that we see per cubic millimeter. And that's exactly the same method that we would use if we were counting spinal fluid in a child with suspected meningitis. An enhanced urinalysis is considered to be positive when there are at least 10 white blood cells per cubic millimeter and one bacteria in 10 oil immersion fields. Now, what's become very popular more recently is the use of automated urinalyses. This is used now in many hospitals and laboratories. In the automated setting, the sample that's used is an uncentrifuged urine. 
and the particles in that urine are usually enumerated and um, classified according to their size. And when you classify them according to their size and express them as the number of <coughs> elements for high power field, it turns out it correlates very well with manual methods for the enumeration of red cells, white <coughs> cells, or squames. And so on the automatic <coughs> counter, if the white cells are reported as being greater than two to three per high power field, that actually equates to about 10 to 15 cells per cubic millimeter and represents significant pyuria. So significant pyuria on an automated specimen is a little bit lower than you have been anticipating or expecting to see in the past. So of course, a child who does not have pyuria and does not have bacteria does not have a urinary tract infection. And on the other hand, when you have the combination of bacteria and pyuria, you can be pretty confident that your patient, in fact, has infection. I just want to say another word about um, pyuria. Although pyuria is a nonspecific finding on a urinalysis, that is to say there are other conditions besides urinary tract infection that can give you pyuria, it is very unusual to have a true urinary tract infection without pyuria, especially if the technique that is used to detect pyuria is sensitive. And the reason for that it is that it's unusual to have infection without inflammation. And that is true for all of the patients that we see at all of their ages. So when you have infection of the urinary tract, you expect to see an inflammatory reaction. So remember, if you're in the situation where the laboratory tells you that the urine culture is positive, but you look back at the UA and there were no white cells, you need to ask yourself, three questions, because there are only three possibilities to explain that situation of a positive urine culture and no white cells. And the first and most common is that the urine specimen is contaminated, that the bacteria in the specimen are coming from outside the urinary tract, and that's why there is no inflammatory response. The second possibility is that you're so early in infection that the patient hasn't had a chance yet to mount an inflammatory response. Now, that can happen, but it's pretty darn rare. And the third possibility is that your patient is experiencing an episode of asymptomatic bacteria. Now, asymptomatic bacteria is a condition that, in general, we tend to associate with school-age girls and older children, but it can also occur in infants. And when it does, it's really pretty easy to confuse true urinary tract infection, especially in febrile children, with asymptomatic bacteria. And it's really important to distinguish the febrile child who has asymptomatic bacteria from the child who has true urinary tract infection, because there are several studies that have shown that when you treat children with asymptomatic bacteria, that you do more harm than good. And the way to distinguish between asymptomatic bacteria and a true urinary tract infection is the presence of pyuria in true infection. So this is what the counting chamber looks like. This is how we count specimens of spinal fluid. And if we were to count the, all these nine boxes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, that will tell us the number of cells per cubic millimeter in spinal fluid or in urine. And that's what we like to do in an enhanced urinalysis. And this is just an example of what those white cells look like on, white, on wet mouth. And you can see that the detail of the polymorphonuclear leukocytes is very easy to see. 
So now for the second half of this talk, I want to talk about the clinical practice guideline for the diagnosis and management of the initial urinary tract infection in febrile infants and children 2 to 24 months of age. This was published, as you know, in 2011. And I also want to spend some time talking about, again, the controversy regarding the need to perform voiding cystourethrograms and antimicrobial prophylaxis. So starting with action statement one, if a clinician decides that a febrile infant with no source for fever requires antimicrobial treatment because of ill appearance, the urine specimen for both culture and UA must be obtained before an antimicrobial agent is given, and the specimen needs to be obtained through either catheterization or suprapubic aspiration because the diagnosis of UTI cannot be established reliably if the culture of urine is collected in a bag. And I think this is self-evident and it should need no more discussion. We've set the stage for this action statement. Action statement two, if a clinician assesses a febrile infant with no apparent source for the fever as not being so ill as to require immediate antimicrobial therapy, then the clinician should assess the likelihood of UTI. And it turns out that although the overall prevalence of urinary tract infection in a little girl who presents with fever and no localizing signs on history or physical examination is 5%, that it is possible to identify groups of children with a higher risk than 5% and groups of children with a lower risk than 5% if we look at some risk factors. And in a, a series of studies that were performed between 1998 and 2003 from investigators who were then at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a validation of a risk assessment was made. And the authors gave us the ability to use several risk factors to assess the likelihood of urinary tract infection in girls. And those risk factors included white race, age less than 12 months, a temperature of at least 39 degrees fever for at least two days, and no other source of infection. So if you're taking care of a little girl who has no factors, zero factors, or a single factor, then their overall probability of developing a urinary tract infection is actually no more than 1%. And that child can simply be observed for a couple of days just to see how things work out. On the other hand, if she has two or more risk factors, then the probability of urinary tract infection exceeds 2%. And that's a girl in whom we'd like to collect a urine. Now, since this girl is not someone who we are going to treat right away, we don't have to. We can get the urine any way we want. However, if that urine is suspicious because it shows some white cells or bacteria, then of course we're going to want to send it for culture. And if we send it for culture, then of course we want it to be either a suprapubic aspiration or a catheterized specimen. So even when obtaining this urine, I think it's wise to get it by the best technique. Now, the major risk factor for a boy developing a urinary tract infection is that he is uncircumcised. And if you're taking care of an uncircumcised boy, then a urine must be obtained. On the other hand, if the child is circumcised, there again are several risk factors that can be used to assess the probability of urinary tract infection. And the four factors are non-black race, a temperature greater than or equal to 39 degrees, fever more than 24 hours, and no other source for infection. So if this young boy has fewer than three factors, again, observation is fine. Fever may disappear tomorrow, and there's no need to do anything else. On the other hand, if there are three or more factors, then a urine must be obtained. So let's just look at a couple of cases. 
So case one is a six-month-old girl who's been fussy with a rectal temp of 39.8 for the past couple of days. Her medical history is unremarkable. Her immunizations are up to date. She's been drinking okay, no vomiting. On physical exam, she appears well, and she has no identifiable source of fever. So what are her risk factors? Her risk factors are a temperature greater than 39. She's a white girl. Her fever has lasted for more than two days, and she has no obvious source of fever. So what's the probability of her urinary tract being infected? Yeah, it's about 25%. So this is, these are those high-risk white girls that really sort of float to the top when you start doing this urine assessment routinely in children who are febrile. Case two is a one-year-old boy with low-grade fever for a couple of days, temperature 38.3, no other symptoms. His immunizations are up to date. He appears well, and he's circumcised. So his risk factors are only that he has no obvious source of fever, probability of UTI, less than 1%, and so we're not going to worry. Action statement three. To establish the diagnosis of urinary tract infection, clinicians should require both UA results that suggest infection, meaning either pyuria or bacteria, and the presence of at least 50,000 colony-forming units of a uropathogen from a urine specimen obtained through catheterization or suprapubic aspiration. Now, the purpose of this action statement is really to emphasize for the clinician the importance of pyuria, and it's asking the clinician to be skeptical if the culture of the urine is positive, but there's no pyuria. Remembering that when you have the situation of bacteria <coughs> without pyuria, either the specimen is contaminated, it's so early in infection that the host has not mounted a response, or you're dealing with asymptomatic bacteria. So action statement 4A, when initiating treatment, the clinician should choose the route of administration on the basis of practical considerations. Initiating treatment orally or parenterally is equally efficacious. And you know, historically, there was a belief in the past that when you had a child with acute pyelonephritis, you absolutely had to treat them intravenously. But I think we know that there have been several large studies now that have compared outcomes of children with suspected pylo or actual pyelonephritis who've been treated with very brief courses of IV plus oral or have been completed, uh, treated entirely with oral therapy and their outcomes have been comparable. And the way we measure outcome in those children is looking for the development of renal scars on a DMSA scan. But what's a DMSA scan? DMSA is dimercaptosuccinic acid. It's an amino acid that localizes at the tubules, the renal tubules, after intravenous injection. When it is linked uh, or bound to technetium and images are performed three to six hours after injection, the labeled DMSA is able to assess vascular flow and tubular function. And we are told that the overall sensitivity of the DMSA in detecting the presence of acute pyelonephritis in a child who actually has acute pyelonephritis is about 90%. And this DMSA study can also be used to assess the presence of renal scarring, and that's how it was used in those studies that compared oral to IV therapy. And when you're looking for scars, you need to do that study at least five or more months after the initial urinary tract infection. So this is what the DMSA looks like, and this Photograph on the left is a normal scan with uh, homogeneous uptake of the technetium throughout the cortex of the kidney. The middle frame is an example of acute pyelonephritis with what we would call a photon deficient or photopenic area in the superior <coughs> pole of the kidney. 
And despite the fact that there are fewer stipples in that area, we can still trace the contour of the kidney. And so we say this, I'm sorry, we say that there's preservation of the contour of the kidney. In contrast to the situation of renal scarring, where again, there's a photopenic area, but in this case, the contour of the kidney has been altered, and so we call that a scar. Now, most children with acute pyelonephritis we now know can be treated orally, and the choices are shown here. Amoxicillin plus clavulanic acid, any of the second or third generation cephalosporins would be suitable. Sometimes you'll see a child in your practice who looks quite toxic, or they have vomiting as part of their syndrome, and they really can't take and retain their antimicrobial, and then they need to get a dose or two by the parenteral route. And once they are feeling better and can tolerate oral therapy, they can get the remainder of their treatment by the oral route. So the potential agents for intravenous therapy include the third generation cephalosporins, ceftriaxone, cefotaxime, ceftazidine. You could use aminoglycosides. We tend to stay away from those these days, gentamicin, tobramycin or an advanced generation penicillin like piperacillin. The second part of that action statement was the clinician should choose seven to 14 days as a duration of therapy. Now the committee tried really hard to be able to recommend a single duration of therapy based on evidence, but it turned out that there just was nothing in the literature that compared seven to 10 to 14 days, and so they were kind of forced to give this range of recommendation. My personal preference is to treat for 10 days unless the patient has responded so, so sluggishly, not really becoming a febrile for four or five days, I might extend. But in the garden variety case, 10 days is gonna be sufficient. Action statement five. Febrile infants with urinary tract infection should undergo renal and bladder ultrasonography. So we know that the renal ultrasound is a study that assesses the anatomy of the urinary tract. And one of its claims to fame is that it's a non-invasive test and that makes it attractive. And it describes renal size, it detects dilatation and duplication of the collecting system. And so um, for those reasons, we find it useful. Important to know that the renal ultrasound is not a good study for the determination of reflux. Children grade five reflux normal ultrasound cannot use it for reflux and you cannot use it for scarring. So the purpose of performing the ultrasound is to look for the presence of gross anatomic abnormalities which will tell the clinician that further evaluation is necessary and that further evaluation can come in the form of either additional imaging or urologic consultation. So these were the results of a study that Hoberman and others in Pittsburgh um, published in 2003, which looked at the ultrasound findings of 603 children <coughs> enrolled after their first urinary tract infection who ranged in age from two months to two years. And what you can see is that 89, whoops, oh, sorry. <coughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> You can see where my technological difficulties are. So, um, in the, so this is again 603 children, two to two to 
two months to two years of age, and they're all having their first urinary tract infection. So 89% of the studies are completely normal, and 11% are abnormal. And the abnormalities are extremely modest, so that not a single one of them led to any change in management. At the same time that this study was published, there were several others which really showed exactly the same thing, and that is that overwhelmingly, the ultrasounds were, nor were normal, or the number of so-called actionable findings were extremely small. That is, things that you found that you really need to do something about. And so the committee really pondered this, and they thought, well, maybe we shouldn't recommend a renal ultrasound in every, every child, especially if they had a prenatal <coughs> ultrasound. But it turns out that, in fact, there's considerable variability in the timing and quality of prenatal ultrasounds and that the report of a normal ultrasound cannot necessarily be relied upon to rule out anatomic abnormalities unless there has been a very detailed anatomic survey with precise measurements that were done in the third trimester and interpretation by a qualified individual. And so for this reason, the committee said, okay, we are gonna recommend that an ultrasound be performed routinely. And they recommended that the optimum time for that diagnosis was at one week after, uh, the optimum time for the study was one week after diagnosis, unless uh, an earlier study might be indicated if the illness was particularly severe or the improvement was not occurring as expected. And so in those cases, you can sometimes find a renal abscess, perinephric abscess, it's, it's extremely rare. So the thing to remember is that when we do ultrasounds, that overwhelmingly they're going to be normal, 15%, 10% are going to be abnormal, the number of actionable findings is going to be 1% to 2%. So you ask yourself again, why did the committee go ahead and recommend it? And the reason they recommended it is because they looked at this test, which is non-invasive, non-invasive ultrasound, and they thought these 1% to 2% of correctable findings are so important that it's going to tip them in favor of recommending the performance of the renal ultrasound. So let's go on to action statement 6A. A VCUG should not be performed routinely after the first febrile UTI. A VCUG is indicated if the ultrasound shows hydronephrosis, scarring, or other findings that would suggest either high-grade reflux or obstructive uropathy, as well as in other atypical or complex circumstances. And they went on to say further that subsequent evaluation would be recommended if there was a recurrence of a febrile UTI. Now, forever, we have considered that the VCUG is an important study to perform. And that feeling has been based on our understanding that one of the principal causes of renal scars is reflux nephropathy, and that renal damage occurs if infected urine refluxes into the kidney. And we know that reflux occurs because of a defect at the ureteral vesicle junction, and that it tends to spontaneously repair over the next three or four years. So the objective in performing a VCUG was to diagnose the presence of reflux and prescribe antimicrobial prophylaxis until such time that the reflux resolved, either spontaneously in low degrees of reflux or in high degrees of reflux, perhaps surgically. And it was noted that the overall rate of reflux after the first urinary tract infection is between 30 and 40%. And this is an important number, because although it indicates that reflux commonly occurs in children with urinary tract infection, in fact, the, the majority of children with their first UTI don't have reflux. So somewhere between 60 to 70% of children with their first UTI do not have reflux. This is just a review of the international classification, and we know that um, 
we use a five-point grading system. Grade one is reflux into the distal ureter. Grade two is reflux all the way into the proximal part of the ureter. And then grades three, four, and five are mild, moderate, and severe dilatation. So it's a, a pretty easy system. Now, the, the recommendation had been, in general, that we recommended prophylaxis for any degree of reflux. And the reason that recommendation was formulated was because it was known that there could be some variability in the results of the VCUG. So a VCUG done today, which showed grade two reflux, might show either grade three or grade one reflux if that study was repeated tomorrow. But the overall purpose of doing the VCUG was to diagnose the presence of reflux. And once reflux was diagnosed, then antibiotic prophylaxis was started. And antibiotic prophylaxis was started on the premise that antibiotic prophylaxis is beneficial in the prevention of recurrent urinary tract infection and scarring, which might lead to end-stage renal disease. However, when you look back at all the studies that preceded this thinking, it turned out that most of the studies, almost all of them, compared antibiotics to antibiotics plus surgery or they compared antibiotics to surgery, and almost none of them had a placebo or control group that was simply observed. And so it turns out that between 2005 and the writing of the guidelines, which was in 2010, there were six new studies that appeared, randomized controlled clinical trials, which appeared assessing the effectiveness of antimicrobial prophylaxis in preventing episodes of febrile urinary tract infection in children who had already had a single infection. And five of these studies challenged the notion that prophylaxis is beneficial, and one of them showed only modest benefit. So if prophylaxis is not beneficial, as suggested by these five studies, and reflux is not required for the development of acute pyelonephritis, then the rationale for performing a VCUG routinely must, in fact, be questioned. And so this was the dilemma facing the committee that made the guidelines. So it turned out that those six randomized control trials that I mentioned were all a little bit different in terms of the ages of the children that were studied and the precise data that was collected on all the youngsters. And so in order to provide a comparable data set to perform a formal meta-analysis, the committee requested that each of the authors of those six studies submit their raw data. And every one of them complied. And that allowed the creation of a data set of 1,091 infants, 2 to 24 months of age, according to the grade of their reflux. And when the formal meta-analysis was done, there was no significant difference, no significant benefit in preventing a recurrence of acute pyelonephritis through the use of antimicrobial prophylaxis, either in infants without reflux or in those with grades 1, 2, 3, or 4 reflux. And only five infants with grade 5 reflux were found in the whole study. So this bar graph just looks at those results again. So we're looking at the outcome of children who received antimicrobial prophylaxis. The grade of reflux is shown along the horizontal axis. The percent of recurrence is shown on the vertical axis. The dark bars are antibiotic recipients, and the white bars are placebo recipients. And you can see that there really is no difference in the rate of this is recurrent ur febrile urinary tract infections in children receiving prophylaxis. So when you look at this data, the committee said, there's no benefit of antimicrobial prophylaxis. Then how can we recommend the routine performance of VCUG? And so that was really the genesis of them backing off recommending VCUG after the first urinary tract infection. 
Having said that, there was still a niggling concern about children who might have grade five reflux and not knowing who in fact had high grade reflux. And so in order to look at that issue of, of high-grade reflux, they created this chart which looks at the rates of reflux by grade in a hypothetical cohort of infants after their first urinary tract infection and after their recurrence. And so we look on the left at children who have no, um, sorry, this, let's look in the middle column. These are children after their first urinary tract infection. If you do a VCUG on 100 children who had their first urinary tract infection, you'll find, as we know, that 65% have no reflux, that 29% have grades one to three, that only five will have grade four, and a single child will have grade five. If you delay performing that VCUG until their recurrence, then you're going to be evaluating many, many fewer children, 10 or 15 or at most 20. And when you evaluate children who've had a recurrent febrile urinary tract infection and you do a VCG, what you find is seen in this column labeled after occurrence. And now, after the second urinary tract infection, only 26% of children will have no reflux, 56% will have grades one to three, 12% will have grades four, and six children will have grade five. So if you delay the performance of the VCUG until the second UTI, you will recover and get to see all the children with high degrees of reflux. And so this, again, is the genesis of the recommendation that if there is more trouble, then consider a VCUG. So action statement seven, after confirmation of UTI, the clinician should instruct parents or guardians to seek prompt medical evaluation for future febrile illnesses to ensure that recurrent infections can be detected and treated properly. This may be the most important recommendation that we give to our parents. Once we've had a first UTI, you must be on the lookout for a second UTI. Early treatment, we know, limits renal damage and the risk of renal scars increase as the number of infections increase. And that's shown very dramatically on this curve, which has number of urinary tract infections on the horizontal axis right here, and then risk of renal scarring on the vertical axis. And you can see as the number of UTIs increase, the risk of scarring increases. And the most dramatic increase is after three urinary tract infections. Okay, so let's step back for one moment. And as a footnote to this whole discussion, let's ask the question, does in fact urinary tract infection cause chronic kidney disease? A really important question, I think. And you know, historically, I think we've been taught and we've carried this thinking forward for 50 or 60 years that urinary tract infections are different than other infections that we see in children. And they're different not because they don't cause a lot of acute morbidity, which they do. And we know that urinary tract infection is the most common cause of serious bacterial infection in children. But the difference was that we felt that unless they're properly evaluated with images and additional treatment, that they could lead to hypertension, more problems with the kidneys, and eventually chronic kidney disease. And so Jonathan Craig, in really a brilliant editorial that he wrote very recently, sort of asked all of us to, to think about this whole situation again and to notice what he refers to as the numerical disconnect between the hundreds of children with UTI that we see and manage and follow and the rarity of end-stage renal disease as a problem in children. And he goes on to reiterate what we know to be true, and that is the overall incidence of urinary tract infection, which we've said three times in this hour, is 5%. The incidence of end-stage renal disease is about five per one million. 
So the risk of urinary tract infection leading to end-stage renal disease is in the ballpark of 1 in 10,000. So a very, very, very low risk. And what we've learned by following cohorts of children prospectively in whom on their prenatal ultrasound we've seen some dilatation of the collecting system, and also following these cohorts of children who present with their first UTI, that the real culprit in terms of end-stage renal disease is the child who has a structural abnormality of their urinary tract, renal dysplasia or renal hypoplasia. And in those children, when they get a urinary tract infection, that brings attention to their problem, but the infection really is an epiphenomenon, and what is causing their chronic or end-stage renal disease is their underlying anatomic problem. So the last question is, and many ask the committee that was devising the guidelines, why don't you just wait until the river study is published before you give recommendations either about the performance of DCUG or use of antimicrobial prophylaxis. And the river study, which was initiated in 2007 and enrolled their last patient in 2011, stood for randomized intervention for children with reflux. And the purpose of the RIVER study was to determine whether antimicrobial prophylaxis with sulfotrimethoprim is effective in preventing recurrent urinary tract infection in children with reflux. Well, certainly there was a gap in time. So the, the guidelines came out in 2011, and the first real study looking at results just came out one week ago. And so for four years, we had to figure something to do. And I think those recommendations <laughs> that we made were reasonable. So this study that was just published one week ago it was entitled Antimicrobial Prophylaxis for Children with Reflux. And this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. All the children who were entered in the trial were known to have reflux because they did have a BCUG. And it was diagnosed after their first or second urinary tract infection, first febrile or symptomatic urinary tract infection. The children ranged in age between 2 and 71 months of age. And they were enrolled at 19 different clinical sites across the US. As I said, all of the children had reflux, and the reflux ranged in grade from grade 1 to grade 4. And in every case, the urine collection was done by a very acceptable method, either catheterization or suprapubic aspiration. Bagged specimens were not allowed. The infections were all uh, delineated with very stringent diagnostic criteria. Every one of them showed evidence of pyuria. They were all culture proven, and all of the children either had fever or symptomatic UTI or both. The primary outcome of the study was looking for febrile or symptomatic UTI. These were all children who'd had a previous one. They were randomized to sulfotrimethoprim or placebo, and then they were evaluated for the onset of a new infection that was either febrile or symptomatic. The secondary outcome was renal scarring. 607 children were enrolled. The median age was 12 months. The mean age was 19 months, indicating that there really were a fair number of children between 2 and 6 years of age who were enrolled in the study. And what we know parenthetically is that when children get their first urinary tract infection at 3 or 4 or 5 years of age is that many of them have bladder dysfunction, bladder and bowel dysfunction as a risk factor for that urinary tract infection. And that was certainly true in this study. So 554 of 607, or 91% of the cohort, was experiencing their first infection. 
the infections were febrile and symptomatic in 53%, febrile only in 32%, and symptomatic only in 14%. So when a child is symptomatic only, these are children who are presenting with lower urinary tract symptoms, urgency, frequency, dysuria. So these kids have lower UTI, not upper UTI. I'm sorry, symptomatic only, lower UTI, not upper UTI. And some of these children who are febrile and symptomatic with low-grade fevers are also going to have lower UTI rather than pyelonephritis. When reflux was evaluated, grades 1 to 3 reflux was found in 92%, and grade 4 reflux was found in 8%. DMSAs were done on all of these children, and these results were a little bit surprising. So 21 or 4% of the children had a pre-existing scar. And this was much higher than we've seen in other series of children with their first UTI who are young. Nine children had complete global atrophy, six more with severe scarring, making us think that these were children who were enrolled who, in fact, had structural abnormalities or renal dysplasia. And the most startling <coughs> statistic to me of all was that only 71 or 12% of the children had a pattern consistent with acute pilo. So only 12% had a DMSA that looked like acute pilo instead of 65% or 70% who should have that. And so I think one of the things we need to underscore is that the population of children studied in River substantially differs from those for whom the guidelines were intended, which were first urinary tract infections, 2 to 24 months of age, and no existing scars. So this is an overall summary of the results. This is what we call a Kaplan-Meier curve. It looks at the time to first recurrent febrile or symptomatic UTI. Time is on the horizontal axis. The vertical axis shows the children with febrile or symptomatic UTI. The placebo indicates is indicated by the dashed line, and the solid line is sulfotrimethoprim. And what you can see is that although there's a little bit of overlap of the confidence intervals at a six months and 12 months, that in fact there was a significant difference between placebo and sulfotrimethoprim favoring the treatment group. That overall difference in outcome varied between about 32 to 50 percent. And it was most remarkable in the children, in fact, the older children who had bowel and bladder dysfunction were one of the groups that had the most benefit, and the other group were the young children with low degrees of reflux. Very importantly, the study showed no difference in scarring between children who received either antibiotic or placebo. There was no difference in the number of scars. There was no difference in new scars. There was no difference in severe scars. So I think that's a really important finding, and it's probably a testimony to early identification of new infections and prompt treatment. Now, this curve looks at the children who we're most interested in. This is time to first recurrent febrile or symptomatic UTI for children less than two years of age with a first febrile UTI by treatment group. The curve is set up in exactly the same way. Again, the dotted line is your placebo, and the solid line is your sulfotrimethoprim. And what you see, I think, is a much less dramatic change um, or outcome than when you saw in the previous slide. And here at the plateau area, between 6 months and 18 months, we see that the overall rate of infection in the treatment group is about 10 percent or 9 percent, and the overall rate of infection in the placebo group is about 15 percent. So an absolute difference of about 6 percent between treatment and placebo in these children. And remember, they're not exactly the same group that are covered by the guideline. And of course, the numbers are much smaller because we've taken a lot of the kids out. 
So River Study, what have we learned? I think we learned a lot, and we learned a lot about what happens when you don't treat children with prophylaxis. We also learned that the recurrence rate is really relatively low, I think lower than we thought, and that almost all of the recurrences are very early. So we saw a steep part of that curve in the first six months, and then it really plateaued out. So if you were going to use prophylaxis, makes you think the first six months are the important. Prophylaxis appears to reduce the risk of UTI. That reduction varies between 30 and 50 percent. And of course, this has biologic plausibility. We know that the antibiotics that we use get into the urine, and we know that the coliforms are susceptible. So what would keep antimicrobial prophylaxis from being effective? Well, <coughs> non-adherence. People don't like to take drugs every day, and they don't like to give their kids drugs every day. And that was true in this study. About 50% of the population that received sulfotrimethoprim were adherent. And the second problem is emerging resistance. And once again, almost all of the breakthrough infections in the sulfotrimethoprim group were organisms that are resistant. Importantly, prophylaxis does not change the risk of renal scarring. Again, a very important outcome of this study. Once more, I believe it's a testimony to prompt diagnosis and early treatment. So I think we have to, knowing that prophylaxis has some benefit, we have to ask ourselves at least four questions. Number one, is the magnitude of benefit of prophylaxis sufficient to justify the trouble? So going from 15% to 9%, 6% difference, is it worth the trouble of taking antimicrobial for two years when, in fact, you don't impact on scarring, which you know traditionally has been the major outcome that we've been concerned about? Given that 80% of children do not get a second infection, if you were inclined to think about prophylaxis, would you start prophylaxis after the first or second infection? Is there a value to knowing who has reflux? And this is the thing I struggled most with. And I think, again, there's always this niggling desire to know. But you'd only want to know if you were going to do something about it, you know, if you were going to fix it. But if a child never has a second UTI, it seems to me that it's really not important for us to know whether they have reflux or not. Because if you don't have infection, reflux is not going to do damage to your kidney. And then lastly, is there reason to deviate from the AAP guideline? And I think at this time, there's no reason to change those recommendations. So in summary, urinary tract infections characterized by pyuria and bacteria. Urine should be obtained by catheter or suprapubic aspiration when antimicrobials are to be started immediately. Oral and IV treatments are equal. Renal ultrasound after first UTI, VCUG after second. Prompt medical evaluation for subsequent febrile illnesses or symptoms, a really important recommendation. Prophylaxis reduces recurrences in the ballpark of 30 to 50 percent. It does not reduce scarring. We might consider prophylaxis after a first UTI in very select patients if you had taken care of a, of a two-month-old who had presented with a fever of 40 and was sick as hell when he came in, you know, that's apparent. You might want to have a conversation about antibiotic prophylaxis and sort of discuss the pros and cons. And now you'd have data to say how likely it would be that prophylaxis would prevent a second infection. We can consider prophylaxis after a second infection. It's just out there. And again, we know the data, and we can make a decision with parents about whether or not we want to use it. And importantly, urinary tract infections does not equal chronic kidney disease unless the kidneys are dysplastic. I thank you for your attention. I'm sorry I went over. Show that the, there's about a 5% chance of having a urinary tract infection, but five in however many will have end-stage renal disease. Is that in the pediatric time frame? Because 
I was worried that the urinary tract infections are setting you up for um, end-stage renal failure as an adult, which is separate data that we don't tend to follow. This is really looking at the ultimate data, so end-stage renal disease in adults. And so I think, uh, I think it's sort of curious that we haven't paid attention to, again, that tremendous disconnect between frequency of UTI, which is common, common, and end-stage renal disease, fortunately, which is rare. Adam? Hey, so, so thanks. That was a really terrific summary. Um, I have two quick comments and then one question. So I, I want to just also emphasize that I really, um, especially the points that you were making at the end, and I don't want to apply some of those points to what you said in the beginning as far as risk factors for UTI. So also think about kids who've had a prior UTI. You know, So in that algorithm that you said, the high fever, the white, you know, a prior UTI, and then if you already have, say, prenatal hydrone, you already know that there's a structural anomaly, and that, that's important to consider for UTIs as well. And then the other thing that I was um, interested in is the uh, study that you showed that your the ultrasounds are not very act were not very actionable, but maybe now with these new guidelines, the ultrasounds will be more actionable because because now that you're not going to get a VCUG on everybody, but if you do an ultrasound and there's hydro, then that might prompt you to do a VCUG rather than, than not do VCUG. So it'd be interesting to restudy that <laughs> now with the new guidelines. Ultrasounds are are actionable, but um, the the question I had for you is I think. Um, you know, prophylaxis is one issue, and, and, and it, how important is it, is it to prevent UTIs and reflux in that regard? Um, but I couldn't agree with you more that I think um, what we're seeing is that reflux is really more of a potential of a marker of a structural abnormality, and that's the issue. And fixing the reflux or prophylacting against UTIs is not going to change that structural abnormality. So one of the ways that I think of doing a VCUG is not a surgical management issue, but more of a diagnostic management issue. If, if we don't get the VCUG, then how will you know whether the child has a structural issue that needs to be followed or not? It'd be great if there was a better test that's you know, more sensitive and more specific, but um, at that young age, I'm not sure if there's if we have any better tests to identify. So the UTI is a marker for, huh, maybe this kid has a structural issue. That, that needs to be followed. Um, it's going to be in the minority of kids, though. So I don't know what your thoughts are, are on that particular Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about it. Again, you're sort of having grown up doing VCUGs. In the early part of my career, they were recommended after second infection, then the switch to first infection, and now back to second infection. I, I guess what I've come to believe, and I, I, think, I think this is valid, it would be nice to bring some absolute data to bear, is that if a child never has another infection, and you're looking for them, I think that's very reassuring that even if they have reflux, that it isn't important for you to know about. And the number of children you'd have to study to determine that, if you're going to look at them all after a first UTI, really doesn't justify, I think, finding that one person. So I think if one is very meticulous about follow-up, and that's something I think we can't emphasize enough, that I would feel comfortable never doing it if they didn't have another infection and I was looking for it. I wasn't writing it off as an otitis or writing it off as a nothing. If I was vigorous about getting another urine when they had unexplained fever or certainly when they had symptoms and they never had another UTI, I think that's fairly powerful. Yeah. The conundrum for me is that some there's a significant instance of people who have reflux that never have an infection in the first place 
and thus and probably they, some that don't have a second infection, yet they may develop nephropathy. So it's hard to. But I think historically, the kids who haven't had infections really have fared pretty well. Mm -hmm. So that I, I, it's the combination of infection, infection and the pressure of reflux, I think, that really does the renal damage rather than the reflux alone. Other questions? Great conversation. Uh, <laughs> and continue the conversation. Come down and talk to Dr. Ellis. We will probably have the opportunity to have another river investigator join us for Grand Rapids in the coming years. So the conversation will continue. But thanks for starting.